For all of our fans of myths and legends, we have a very old tale today. This is Shannon Nichols reading an excerpt from the oldest story to grace this podcast, The Odyssey by Homer. This is the story of how Odysseus and his crew met the Cyclops. The Odyssey, Book 9, Part 1 Homer's Odyssey follows on from the Iliad and tells the epic tale of the ten-year-long journey home that Odysseus, also known as Ulysses, and his twelve ships full of men embark upon after their victory at Troy. Along their voyage, the warriors are met with all manner of dangers and foes, from men to monsters to the gods themselves. His men all perish by various means, and finally Odysseus is left alone and stranded upon a raft at the mercy of Poseidon's wrath. By the grace of Zeus, Athena, and the hospitable Elcanus, king of the Phaeacians, he is saved and provided passage home. Before he departs, Elcanus throws a grand feast for this nameless stranger, and they all partake in food, drink, and games. The blind poet, Demodocus, sings the tale of the Trojan War to everyone's delight. Everyone, that is, except for Odysseus, who is brought to tears by this reminder of his own melancholy past. Elcanus, the king, is the only one to notice his guest's tears, and insists that he reveal his name so as to explain his sorrow. And so, Odysseus begins his tale. King Elcanus It is a good thing to hear a bard with such a divine voice as this man has. There is nothing better or more delightful than when a whole people make merry together, with the guests sitting orderly to listen, while the table is loaded with bread and meats, and the cupbearer draws wine and fills his cup for every man. This is indeed as fair a sight as a man can see. Now, however... Since you are inclined to ask the story of my sorrows and rekindle my own sad memories in respect of them, I do not know how to begin, nor yet how to continue and conclude my tale. For the hand of heaven has been laid heavily upon me. Firstly then I will tell you my name, that you too may know it, and one day if I outlive this time of sorrow may become my guests, though I live so far away from all of you. I am Odysseus, son of Laertes, renowned among mankind for all manner of subtlety, so that my fame ascends to heaven. I live in Ithaca, where there is a high mountain called Neritum, covered with forests, and not far from it there is a group of islands very near to one another. Dulichium, Sami, and the wooded island of Zycanthus. It lies squat on the horizon, all highest up in the sea towards the sunset. It is a rugged island, but it breeds brave men, and my eyes know none that they better love to look upon. The goddess Calypso kept me with her in her cave and wanted me to marry her, as did also the cunning Aeaean goddess Kirke. But they could neither of them persuade me, for there is nothing dearer to a man than his own country and his parents. And however splendid a home he may have in a foreign country, if it be far from father or mother, he does not care for it. Now, however, I will tell you of the many hazardous adventures which, by Zeus's will, I met with on my return from Troy. When I had set sail thence, the wind took me first to Ismarus, which is the city of the Kikones. There I sacked the town and put the people to the sword. 
We took their wives and also much booty, which we divided equitably among us so that none might have reason to complain. I then said that we had better make off at once, but my men very foolishly would not obey me. So they stayed there drinking much wine and killing great numbers of sheep and oxen on the seashore. Meanwhile, the Kikones cried out for help to other Kikones who lived in land. These were more in number and stronger, and they were more skilled in the art of war, for they could fight either from chariots or on foot as the occasion served. In the morning, therefore, they came as thick as leaves and bloom in summer, and the hand of heaven was against us, so that we were hard-pressed. They set the battle in array near the ships, and the host aimed their bronze-shod spears at one another. So long as the day waxed and it was still morning, we held our own against them, though they were more in number than we. But as the sun went down towards the time when men loose their oxen, the Kikones got the better of us, and we lost half a dozen men from every ship we had. So we got away with those that were left. Thence we sailed onward, with sorrow in our heart, but glad to have escaped death, though we had lost our comrades. Nor did we leave till we had thrice invoked each one of the poor fellows who had perished by the hands of the Kikones. Then Zeus raised the north wind against us till it blew a hurricane, so that the land and sky were hidden in thick clouds, and night sprang forth out of the heavens. We let the ships run before the gale, but the force of the wind tore our sails to tatters, so we took them down for fear of shipwreck, and rowed our hardest toward the land. There we lay two days and two nights, suffering much alike from toil and distress of mind. But on the morning of the third day, we again raised our masts, set sail and took our places, letting the wind and steersmen direct our ship. I should have got home at that time, unharmed, had not the north wind and the currents been against me as I was doubling Cape Malaya and set me off my course hard by the island of Kithera. I was driven thence by foul winds for a space of nine days upon the sea. But on the tenth day we reached the land of the lotus eaters who live on a food that comes from a kind of flower. Here we landed to take in fresh water and our crews got their midday meal on the shore near the ships. When they had eaten and drunk, I sent two of my company to see what manner of men the people of the place might be, and they had a third man under them. They started at once and went about among the lotus eaters, who did them no hurt, but gave them to eat of the lotus, which was so delicious that those who ate of it left off caring about home and did not even want to go back and say what had happened to them, but were for staying and munching lotus with the lotus eaters, without thinking further of return. Nevertheless, though they wept bitterly, I forced them back to their ships and made them fast under the benches. Then I told the rest to go on board at once, lest any of them should taste of the lotus and leave off wanting to get home. So they took their places and smote the grey sea with their oars. We sailed hence always in much distress, till we came to the land of the lawless and inhuman Cyclopes. Now the Cyclopes neither plant nor plough, but trust in providence, and live on such wheat, barley, and grapes as grow wild without any kind of tillage. And their wild grapes yield them wine, as the sun and the rain may grow them. They have no laws, or assemblies of the people, 
but live in caves on the tops of high mountains. Each is lord and master in his family, and they take no account of their neighbours. Now off their harbour there lies a wooded and fertile island, not quite close to the land of the Cyclops, but still not far. It is overrun with wild goats that breed there in great numbers, and are never disturbed by foot of man. For sportsmen, who as a rule will suffer so much hardship in forest or among uh, mountain precipices, do not go there. Nor yet again is it ever ploughed or fed down, but it lies a wilderness, untilled and unsown from year to year, and has no living thing upon it but only goats. For the Cyclopes have no ships, nor yet shipwrights who could make ships for them. They cannot therefore go from city to city, or sail over the sea to another one's country as people who have ships can do. If they had had these, they would have colonised the island, for it is a very good one and would yield everything in due season. There are meadows that in some places come right down to the seashore, well watered and full of luscious grass. Grapes would do there excellently. There is level land for ploughing, and it would always yield heavily at harvest time, for the soil is deep. There is a good harbour where no cables are wanted, nor yet anchors, nor need a ship be moored, but all one has to do is to beach one's vessel and stay there till the wind becomes fair for putting out to sea again. At the head of the harbour, there is a spring of clear water coming out of a cave, and there are poplars growing all round it. Here we entered, but so dark was the night that some god must have brought us in, for there was nothing whatever to be seen. A thick mist hung all round our ships. The moon was hidden behind a mass of clouds so that no one could have seen the island if he had looked for it, nor were there any breakers to tell us we were close inshore before we found ourselves upon the land itself. When, however, we had beached the ships, we took down the sails, went ashore, and camped upon the beach till daybreak. When the child of morning, rosy-fingered dawn, appeared, we admired the island and wandered all over it, while the nymphs, Zeus's daughters, roused the wild goats that we might get some meat for our dinner. On this we fetched our spears and bows and arrows from the ships, and, dividing ourselves into three bands, began to shoot the goats. Heaven sent us excellent sport. I had twelve ships with me, and each ship got nine goats, while my own ship had ten. Thus through the livelong day to the going down of the sun we ate and drank our fill, and we had plenty of wine left, for each of us had taken many jars full when we sacked the city of the Kikones, and this had not yet run out. While we were feasting we kept turning our eyes towards the land of the Cyclopes, which was hard by, and saw the smoke of their stubble fires. We could almost fancy we heard their voices and the bleating of their sheep and goats, but when the sun went down and it came on dark, we camped down upon the beach. And next morning, I called a council. Stay here, my brave fellows, said I. All the rest of you while I go with my ship and explore these people myself. I want to see if they are uncivilized savages or a hospitable and humane race. I went on board, bidding my men to do so also, and loose the horses. So they took their places and smote the grey sea with their oars. When we got to the land, which was not far, there on the face of a cliff near the sea, 
we saw a great cave overhung with laurels. It was a station for a great many sheep and goats, and outside there was a large yard with a high wall round it made of stones built into the ground and of trees, both pine and oak. This was the abode of a huge monster who was then away from home, shepherding his flocks. He would have nothing to do with other people, but led the life of an outlaw. He was a horrid creature, not like a human being at all, but resembling rather some crag that stands out boldly against the sky on the top of a high mountain. I told my men to draw the ship ashore and stay where they were, all but the twelve best among them, who were to go along with myself. I also took a goatskin of sweet black wine which had been given me by Maron, son of Evantes, who was priest of Apollo, the patron god of Ismarus, and lived within the wooded precincts of the temple. When we were sacking the city, we respected him, and spared his life as also his wife and his child. So he made me some presents of great value. Seven talents of fine gold, and a bowl of silver, with twelve jars of sweet wine unblended, and of the most exquisite flavour. Not a man nor maid in the house knew about it, but only himself, his wife, and one housekeeper. When he drank it, he mixed twenty parts of water to one of wine, and yet the fragrance from the mixing bowl was so exquisite that it was impossible to refrain from drinking. I filled a large skin with this wine and took a wallet full of provisions with me, for my mind misgave me that I might have to deal with some savage who would be of great strength and would respect neither right nor law. We soon reached his cave, but he was out shepherding, so we went inside and took stock of all that we could see. His cheese racks were loaded with cheeses, and he had more lambs and kids than his pens could hold. They were kept in separate flocks. First there were the hoggets, then the oldest of the younger lambs, and lastly the very young ones, all kept apart from one another. As for his dairy, all the vessels, bowls, and milk pails into which he milked were swimming with whey. When they saw all this, my men begged me to let them first steal some cheeses and make off with them to the ship. They would then return, drive down the lambs and kids, put them on board, and sail away with them. It would have been indeed better if we had done so, but I would not listen to them, for I wanted to see the owner himself in the hope that he might give me a present. When, however, we saw him, my poor men found him ill to deal with. We lit a fire, offered some of the cheeses in sacrifice, ate others of them, and then sat waiting till the Cyclops should come in with his sheep. When he came, he brought in with him a huge load of dry firewood to light the fire for his supper, and this he flung with such a noise onto the floor of his cave that we hid ourselves for fear at the far end of the cavern. Meanwhile, he drove all the ewes inside, as well as the she-goats that he was going to milk, leaving the males, both rams and he-goats, outside in the yards. Then he rolled a huge stone to the mouth of his cave, so huge that two and twenty strong four-wheeled wagons would not be enough to draw it from its place against the doorway. When he had done so, he sat down and milked his ewes and goats, all in due course, and then let each of them have her own young. 
He curdled half the milk and set it aside in wicker strainers. But the other half he poured into bowls that he might drink it for his supper. When he had got through with all his work, he lit the fire and then caught sight of us, whereon he said, Strangers, who are you? Where do you sail from? Are you traders, or do you sail the sea as rovers, with your hand against every man, and every man's hand against you? We were frightened of our senses by his loud voice and monstrous form, but I managed to say, We are Achaeans on our way home from Troy, but by the will of Zeus and stress of weather, we have been driven far out of our course. We are the people of Agamemnon, son of Atreus, who has won infinite renown throughout the whole world by sacking so great a city and killing so many people. We therefore humbly pray you to show us some hospitality, and otherwise make us such presents as visitors may reasonably expect. May your excellency fear the wrath of heaven, for we are your suppliants. And Zeus takes all respectable travellers under his protection, for he is the avenger of suppliants and foreigners in distress. To this he gave me but a pitiless answer. Stranger, said he, you are a fool, or else you know nothing of this country. Talk to me indeed about fearing the gods or shunning their anger. We Cyclopes do not care about Zeus or any of your blessed gods, for we are ever so much stronger than they. I shall not spare either yourself or your companions out of any regard for Zeus, unless I am in the humour for doing so. And now, tell me where you made your ship fast when you came on shore. Was it round the point, or is she lying straight off the land? He said this to draw me out, but I was too cunning to be caught in that way. So I answered with a lie. Poseidon! said I, sent my ship on the rocks at the far end of your country and wrecked it. We were driven onto them from the open sea, but I and those who are with me escaped the jaws of death. The cruel wretch vouchsafed me not one word of answer, but with a sudden clutch he gripped up two of my men at once and dashed them down upon the ground as though they had been puppies. Their brains were shed upon the ground and the earth was wet with their blood. Then he tore them, limb from limb, and supped upon them. He gobbled them up like a lion in the wilderness, flesh, bones, marrow, and entrails, without leaving anything uneaten. As for us, we wept and lifted up our hands to heaven on seeing such a horrid sight, for we did not know what else to do. But when the Cyclops had filled his huge paunch, and had washed down his meal of human flesh with a drink of neat milk, he stretched himself full length upon the ground among his sheep, and went to sleep. I was at first inclined to seize my sword, draw it, and drive it into his vitals. But I reflected that if I did, we should all certainly be lost, 
for we should never be able to shift the stone which the monster had put in front of the door. So we stayed, sobbing and sighing, where we were till morning came. Thank you, Shannon, for that first part of Book Nine of the Odyssey. Tune in next week for Part Two. Thank you.